be one journalist of the year from the American Conservative Union at CPAC 2015. You like me right now. You like me. He's Jim Garrity. How do you like me now? Now that I'm on my She's a broadcast professional who's got pop culture by the throat, and she won't let go. Crank up the radio. Run for your lives, everyone. This is not a drill. She's broadcast pro Mickey White. This is the Jim and Mickey Show. Welcome to the Jim and Mickey Show, brought to you by Westworld Theme Park. We invite you to lose yourself in our all-encompassing western frontier space and live out all of your fantasies with our robot hosts and hostesses. Thanks to our patented Skynet technology, there's absolutely no chance that any of the robots will become self-aware and hostile to human beings. Remember, if you're in a Michael Crichton story about an amusement park run by scientists using groundbreaking experimental technology, what's the worst that could happen? (laughs) So come on down and sign all of our extensive legal waivers and get ready to buy the farm. I'm sorry, visit the farm. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White, and we come to you this week with a really unique set of circumstances. Mickey, there's genuine news about Kim Kardashian, and I actually (laughs) want to hear about it. I know, I know, and I have felt a little like the Oracle this week, I'm not going to lie, considering, you know, 95% of my, the people in my life generally mock me for my fascination with the Kardashians and, of course, my recently self-imposed marathon so I could get caught up on their lives. Um, I've taken a lot of mockery. Turns out this week that I was a useful resource for a lot of people. <laughs> Twitter blowing up with questions for Mickey. Did they yeah, really it was lose suddenly their like, hey, hey, bullshit? hey, what about this, Mickey? What about this? I'm like, all right, let me help you out one at a time now. Mickey, this is your coup in Turkey week. When all of a sudden, <laughs> quick, find the Turkish expert. Yeah. All right. So all I know is from the headlines that she got robbed in Paris. Was it somebody came into her hotel room or something and took her jewelry and held her at gunpoint or something? Am I, do I have the gist right? You have the gist correct. Yes. She was, um, she was actually robbed in Paris. There were a lot of conflicting stories in the beginning. And part of that, I'm going to guess, is just American translation from from Paris stories. Also, I think part of it is people not watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians because I felt like I already had the backstory. It was all over the news. How could anybody not know that happened? Well, it wasn't that. It was when the initial story broke. um, It really broke because Kanye left his concert. That is why the news broke in the U.S., Mid-performance, as I understand it, right? Mid, basically mid-song. He, he basically walked out, and you can see the clip, but he walked out, said, show's over, family emergency, sorry, got to go, out. Really? Okay. And that was it. And, of course, his reaction like that caused people to say, what family emergency, what's going on? I'm not going to lie. My first thought was, was Rob okay? He's been having a lot of problems. He's the brother, et cetera. Um, then the story comes out that, that Kim was actually held at gunpoint. Um, they're now saying there were up to five assailants, two that actually came into the room, others that held the concierge um, at bay. She was duct taped, head, feet. Um, she had those uh, plastic clips uh, as far as handcuffs on her hands, and her jewelry was stolen. Now, the number one question everyone has is, why did this hotel not have more security? Well, it's not actually a hotel. Um, it's kind of similar to what you'd find in Trump Towers, 
where it's actually a, theoretically a hotel, but they're actually apartments inside the hotel. Mm-hmm. And she was at their apartment, the apartment that she and Kanye own in Paris. So she was in her home. So let's start there. Um, she was actually in her home. So the idea of being more relaxed, et cetera, that was part of it. The other part of it is now we're finding out that it was most likely an inside job um, of people that have worked security for her before and people that just um, are familiar with the area. They, they believe, and there's been a lot of speculation that the people at the, that work at the hotel um, could be involved as well. And unfortunately for Kim, I mean, it was sounds like it was a terrifying situation. She was woken from her bed um, where she was sleeping. And they demanded her engagement ring from Kanye, which was $4.5 million. They had guns on her. Then they duct taped her head and feet and ankles. And she begged for her life. And apparently at one point, as is every woman's fear, she feared that she might be raped as part of this as well. Um, then she was put into a bathtub. And she screamed for her life, apparently claiming you know, that she had babies back in New York. And um, when she heard, you know, them clicking and they locked her in the bathroom, she apparently wiggled out of the wrist restraints um, and managed to, like, get to the balcony where she yelled out screaming for help. And now downstairs in this two-story apartment was one of her assistants. She heard what was going on upstairs, locked herself in the bathroom. Um, downstairs, apparently tried to call 911. Well, I don't even know how 911 works in France, and I'm certain that she doesn't either. Um, so it didn't work out that well. So she ended up calling the bodyguard who showed up and then contacted the authorities, etc. But apparently the whole experience lasted less than six minutes, and her bodyguard, who was normally with her, was out with her sisters. How did people know how to get to her? They believe the concierge tipped them off. I was going to say, I've never felt more sympathy uh, or felt worse for that vapid, overexposed, socially corrosive fame whore. Um, we should all probably take a moment for her. You know, like, you know, I, I can't stand her, but nobody should go through something like that. I did see some people speculating, oh, this, this is all publicity stunt. I, I, that, that reaction didn't make any sense to me because, Mickey, is there anybody on earth who doesn't need to do a publicity stunt more than Kim Kardashian? No. And in fact, while I know a lot of people, there was some publicity stunt talk, there were some very ignorant um, comments about insurance, turning it in for insurance, et cetera. I have no doubt that there are people living in France who want $10 million worth of jewelry. And if they think they can walk into a bedroom and get it, why wouldn't they? So again, please understand this one was actually in her home, not in an apartment. This is a home invasion robbery. Mm -hmm. And were there people who betrayed her in order to take this stuff from her? Absolutely. There were, this is an inside job, without a doubt. Do I think she personally was involved? No, that's ridiculous. Does she travel um, around with that much value in jewels and baubles in her person without some sort of extra well, effort made to take care of that sort of thing? She usually, and again, they usually are very good about this. One of the reasons they were able to get to her is because they believe that the team was tipped off, that she was vulnerable and home alone sleeping. 
She allowed her personal bodyguard to go out with her sisters because they were going to a club because she was, quote, staying home, going to bed. Now, as far as carrying around her baubles, look, I've said on this show before, I don't personally travel with my jewelry, specifically my engagement ring, because I know it attracts attention. It looks nothing like Kim Kardashian's engagement ring. However, that engagement ring is... I'm looking at this diamond. Yeah, that engagement ring... The size of your thumbtip, probably. But that engagement ring is hers. She has every right to wear it, and she's super pleased with it. It's also part of her brand, like her being Kanye's wife. The engagement, the entire part where he uh, proposed to her was a big part of both the real-life storyline and the storyline of what she's put forth in the public. And so that ring itself was worth $4.5 million. That's what they really wanted. And everything else was just bonus. But the thing is, she wears that ring every day. And wearing that ring every day, being that it's her engagement ring, one of the things that I am absolutely not having any part of, um, kind of what I'm calling the short skirt 2016 um, attack, if you will, is that she, for some reason, deserved this because she was wearing her engagement ring and the jewelry that she owned. Um, I, I, I have absolutely no time for that. Uh, you know, people can wear the things that they have. People can do the things they do. That does not make them a acceptable target for robbers. Yeah. You know, I don't know about you, Mickey. This strikes me as a really difficult score for a thief to fence. Because it's, you know, almost instantly going to be the most famous stolen ring in the entire world. There's got to be a million pictures of it. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you want to have that ring for yourself and you're never going to wear it in public. Right? I mean, I, I just, you figure at some point this ring and this jewelry. The ring is traceable. Yeah. Like most of this jewelry, I assume it's going to, you know. But, some- I mean, they could break it down. You see how big it is. Oh, you're going to break down the diamond, you think? I, oh, absolutely. Sure, sure. I, I mean, I, I realize the diamond is worth a great deal more at that size, but they, they, they can't get rid of it at that size except yeah. for to someone who is actually a jewel thief. So Yeah, somebody who's going to, you know, you take, take your $4.5 million diamond, break it down into three $1 million diamonds that aren't recognizable and connectable to the Kim Kardashian ring, you still got a million dollars for each heist member or something like that. That you know, yeah, something. Uh, you know, it's probably more plausible. I, I would be. Here's the thing. I, I, I'm looking at this and I kind of figure if you're a thief, there's got to be somebody out there who, who is as wealthy and has rings and has you know stuff to steal, as valuable and as wealthy as the Kardashians are. That won't be the center of a media maelstrom, right? I mean, I imagine every Inspector Clouseau in Paris is going to be out there trying to be the one who cracks the case here, just simply out of you instantly become one of the most famous, you know, celebrated policemen of all uh, the entire, you know, around the world. Or am I, am I just, uh, uh, you know, overestimating the power of celebrity? In this Do case? not attack no, me, Kato. No, in fact, quite the opposite. There is um, a lot of speculation that this was actually a very personal theft um, and that perhaps some of the people involved with the armed robbery were also um, prior her security guards when she was in Paris at another time. There can't be that. that, So you begin with a short suspect list, right? I mean, you know, somebody who had to know her schedule, probably know that the bodyguard was away. That's, you know, it's a, 
As I say, you know, given enough time, you know, given enough time and access, Mickey, you and I could probably crack this case. <laughs> I feel like we could, specifically because you know how much Discovery ID that I watch. Um, there's probably only one more thing that holds me in, like the Kardashians and like true crime, and that, of course, is my Steelers. And uh, coming up this weekend, we'll be playing Jim's Jets in the next segment. I'm Mickey White. He's Jim Garrity. We'll be right back. When that sunlight breaks out, lift up your head and shout. It's gonna be a great day. Kellogg's waits for you. That spirit comes shining through, promising you a great day. Mamma mia, that's a spicy meatball. If I told him how I make Hidden Valley Ranch salad dressing, he'd never try it. I ate it. This dressing's delicious. It's different. You see, the Hidden Valley fixings turn mayonnaise and buttermilk. What'd you say? I said we're out of butter. Oh. Into an extraordinary salad dressing with a fresh, lively flavor that's delicious, like he says. Eat it. Who are you talking to? I'm talking, uh, it's only the TV, Ralph. Delicious Hidden Valley Ranch, the original flavor buttermilk dressing with the original taste. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Mickey White, along with my co-host, Jim Garrity. And for our regular listeners, you guys know, I bleed black and gold. I am a Steelers girl down to my very core. Thank you, God, for making me born in Western Pennsylvania and making me a Steelers fan. Now, as you guys know, Jim Garrity wasn't as lucky. Jim (laughs) was born in Jersey, and that only leads to one thing. He's a Jets fan. Technically, it can read, lead to being a Giants fan uh, as well. Yeah, and that would have been a better choice for you. So you <laughs> I'm not so yourself. sure. Have you met Giants fans? Anyway, um, yeah, so theoretically, our teams play each other this week. People can't see I'm making air quotes when I say play because uh, I don't think it's going to be that much of a game either. Uh, the Steelers, I believe that they won on Sunday night. Was it like 983 to nothing against the Chiefs or something? Something or the Chiefs like that. Second. It was spectacular. Was- um, it was not a shutout. And people were all like, oh, it's not a shutout. I'm like, we just scored. It was like 38 to nothing when we let them score. I'm like, really? Yeah. I um, can let it go. And that was the Chiefs who the previous week, the Jets had thrown so many interceptions that Stephen Hawking had to be called in to calculate the total uh, in that one. So we're expecting one of the epic blowouts uh, of this week. And I, I don't know about you, Mickey, like, you know, the, the only convenience of being a Jets fan is that, look, here we are in early October. And as far as the season's pretty much over, we're one and three. We're not going anywhere this year. We're already looking at draft prospects. Everything's, you know, everything stinks. Um, rivalries are most fun when both teams are good, aren't they? That's usually the case, yes. Um, And the thing is, like, I have a general distaste for the Jets because you guys often like to play the spoiler for us. Um, That's really your only purpose in life as far as I've been able to figure out, as long as I've been watching football, is that the Jets love to play spoiler in the AFC. Um, My fear is that my Steelers will return to form that they had the previous weekend um, where they played down to their competition, so to speak. And so if they play down to your Jets, it could be a close game, and that would be really unfortunate. I was going to say, when it comes to playing down to their opponents, they rise to the challenge. Um, Almost every I was, time. I was about to say, like, because technically I could gloat and I could say, ha-ha, Mickey, we beat you the last time we played. That was when, you know, for the 10 minutes that Mike Vick was quarterback for the Jets, um, I think it was the only game he played for the Jets where he won. If he, he might have like had two. We were like four and twelve that year. 
Mm-hmm. And it was a terrible, terrible year. So technically I can gloat, but it's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> don't pay any attention to any other game that season. <laughs> right. Don't look at any other game but that one. And unfortunately, we have that problem with a lot of teams because – Again, we have a tendency to play down to our competition. Even if we are doing well in a season, a lot of times we'll go in unprepared. I blame Tomlin for a lot of this. Um, I worry about the discipline on our team because after the big loss, our defensive coordinator came out and Butler says that sometimes it's good for a team to lose early on because you can't get guys to listen in the locker room when they're winning. And I was like, isn't that your damn job? <laughs> there's probably something to that. Yeah, there's always an issue of overconfidence. But I'd like to think, look, if you're a professional player, unless you think the coach is terrible and you think the coach has no idea what he's talking about, and I'm, I'm guessing there's probably only a handful of coaches in the NFL who, are, who have lost the locker rooms on that level. Um, I figure if you're a professional, you're going to listen to your coach week in, week out. Or my, Do I have a naive understanding of NFL locker rooms? Definitely. I def- no, okay. Yeah, I definitely think it's much it's more like a job. Easy. I think it's much more like a job in the sense that you might like what you do, but you may not like your boss kind of thing. There's only and been I'm- one head coach in the history of football that didn't know what he was doing, but his team loved him, and that was Barry Switzer when the Cowboys won the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> so very he didn't true. know what he was doing, but they loved him because they got rings, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, But I think, you know, I think that there's a lot of, you know, they may have respect for coaches. They may have, you know, may have it's personality issues in some cases. But I have seen in general a spike in behavior in the Steelers that I don't like. Um, And that's just me as a hardcore Steeler fan being the one who's like, you know, we're getting all of these fines and we're getting all of these penalties because Antonio Brown wants to wiggle his jiggly part. Every time he scores. And I'm like, dude, you're the best wide receiver in the NFL. Act like you've been there before. Barry Sanders used to just walk over to the ref, hand him the ball, and walk back to the line. I miss I like that. Didn't he already win Dancing with the Stars? He was on it. Okay, so like, is he looking for a return in- invite or something? Like what? I, no, he loves – like he has always done over-the-top celebrations. Um, he at one time was into flipping – into the end zone like actually back yeah that would make my heart stop like he'd be running down we know we're gonna score a touchdown i'm all excited and then he does a flip and literally all my fun is gone because i'm like please jesus get up from that yeah and hold on to the ball don't tumble out of bounds right don't tumble out of bounds don't Don't rip a medial collateral (laughs) don't fall on your head don't get hit mid-air while you're doing that I mean, like, there's a million things that can run through your mind as a fan, and I don't understand why he in particular is one that doesn't get that, look, he's going to get a fine. He's going to get penalized. And at one point, a 15-yard penalty is going to hurt us. If we're doing this against the Patriots, I don't want to see any penalties that we can avoid. I know you, you will not approve of any sighting of any Cincinnati Bengal ever, but I'm thinking of the icky shuffle by the Icky Woods, who was a star for about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and he used to go to the sideline, and he'd do a little dance. you shuffle to the left, you shuffle to the right. But I'm realizing there's nothing taunting about that, right? You're not doing this in the face of the opposing player. There's nothing that can be seen as bad sportsmanship. As you know, Do the play, celebrate, go to the sideline, and do whatever you want to do. Exactly. If you want to choreograph yourself like the Rockettes, you go right ahead and you do that. <laughs> but don't do it on the field. 
Let them get on to do the extra point and all that stuff. You can do it in front of the cameras. I don't see anything wrong with any of that, that stuff. Just get it off the field. It's and, ESPN uh, disease is what it is. They know there's a highlight reel every night on ESPN in primetime, and they all want to be on it. So whenever they do something, they do some funky dance to try to get more TV time so they can call their friends and family and say, be watching ESPN 9 o'clock, I'll make the highlight reel. It really I, is. It's I, a goal. Here's the thing. Antonio Brown is making the highlight reel anyway. He's the best receiver in the NFL. He has no reason to act like a jagoff. And I'd really like it if he'd stop. There's nothing wrong with exuberance. There's nothing wrong with celebration. There's nothing wrong with joy of the game. When, you know, nine times out of ten, when these guys get into trouble, it's because they've done something that is seen as taunting the other players or something like that. Or, or they've done, in the case of one of the uh, Redskins last week, he did archery. Uh, and he got a penalty for that one because it was considered a weapon. Now, Dave, I'm going to need that one explained. To me. <laughs> I know you're- because I heard I didn't see that game. I heard about that penalty, and I'm like, I literally had to have people explain it six times. I'm like, wait, what? No, it was a pretend bow and arrow. What? <laughs> okay, so yeah. Uh- Nikki, Dave, we're all concerned about the recent spate of drive-by archery in America's communities. Well, they, right, they threw a kid out of school for. For biting a pop tart in the shape of a gun, right? So a guy with a fake, non-existent bow and arrow—he's a danger to the eighty thousand people in the stadium. Get him I, out of there! Like I have no. Someone's gonna have to explain to me what I mean. Like, can we? Didn't someone used to do the bang bang when they, you know, like shoot? Oh, up? they banned that one. They they didn't like that one either. Um, See, yeah. this is why they call them the no fun league. <laughs> And as someone who doesn't care about the fun 95% of the time, I only care about the football, I generally ignore it. But, again, I don't like the way Antonio Brown is behaving. I'm speaking about him because he's one of our players. It reminds me of things that T.O. and Chad Johnson did oh, that yeah. used to annoy me back in the day. Oh, Sean, just give me the damn ball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's built into their DNA. Yeah, it absolutely yeah. is. They're naturally showboats. They're naturally cocky and confident. Um, but I think that, again, this, this takes away from his own personal accomplishments every time he has one of these problems. And truth be told, the man was on Dancing with the Stars. He has more moves than just, you know, doing the hip jiggle at the ref. And, again, if I'm the ref and he's standing in front of me and suddenly he's, you know, waving his wiggly bits at me, I'm throwing the flag, too. I don't want to see that. If his bits are wiggling while he's playing football, I think we need better sports equipment. We're <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, we, we have discussed uh, the last couple of weeks both of the Kaepernick controversy. Uh, we talked last week about whether red zone is more fun than watching an actual game. Um, this week we find ratings are down double digits over last year. And I think there's a whole bunch of reasons for this, Mickey. But are, are, are you noticing, Mickey, that you're watching less of the non-Steelers games? Oh, absolutely. And specifically Thursday nights. I think that Thursday nights, as we discussed last week, they're the worst thing to ever happen to football. And then when you throw in a game like we had on Sunday in London, where football started at 9 a.m. Eastern time Sunday and went till God's hour Sunday night, that's a little much. Again, Roger Goodell leading the product. Overmarketing. To say that there's the theory, if you throw in a London game, there are six games on TV on the weekend. Right? The Thursday night game, the early morning London game, 1 p.m., 4 p.m., Sunday night game, and then the Monday night game. And it called me crazy. I, I'm a football fan. One, not all of those six of those games are going to be good. 
let's face it, usually the London games are like two, you know, which, which franchise fans will complain the least if we take away a home game? Right. <laughs> Miami? Okay, let's put them in there. You know? um, so usually it's like two leftover teams that you kind of put into there. Um, and then like these Thursday night games, like, you know, low and, go figure, the human body isn't great at playing two full pounding games in a five-day span. <laughs> who, who could have seen that coming? Right. We've ended up with less quality games on Thursday nights because they're not getting the rest. And now they're not even giving teams the bye week automatically after the London game. Yeah, who, who are we kidding? Sunday nights are not really for football anymore. Sunday is a Sunday afternoon game. Sunday nights are for HBO. And we'll be talking about what HBO is offering you on Sunday nights right after this. I'm sure a lot of people think this is just some radio shtick. <laughs> Introducing Popeye's all-new comic strip glasses, yours to keep when you buy a 69-cent soft drink. The San Pedro Beach Bums. What is it? It's a police dog. They're cunning. He's undercover. Oh, boy. But they get a surprise from Charlie's Angels, the San Pedro Beach Bums, right before 49ers versus Steelers on NFL football. back to the Jim and Mickey show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. And I don't know about you, Mickey. Last Sunday, I tuned into HBO around nine o'clock because I had heard a lot about this series that they were, they were getting ready to launch. Apparently, if not the single most expensive television series of all time, that it was definitely close to it. Starring big name actors like Anthony Hopkins and Jeffrey Wright and the guy who played Cyclops in the X-Men movies and Thandie Newton, and I'm sure there's a bunch of others that I'm forgetting in there, um, called Westworld, which was based on a, a, a screenplay by Michael Crichton, before the departed uh, you know, famous author of Jurassic Park and lots of other uh, popular novels. The concept was an amusement park set in the not-too-distant future, made to look like a Western where people could go and, and act out all of their wildest fantasies of being the good guy, being the bad guy, sleeping with prostitutes, having gunfights, riding horses, all that kind of stuff. Not bathing for a month at a time. Yeah. Fleas, uh, <laughs> lice, <laughs> or Western med era medicine. Anyway. Who wouldn't uh, pay a <laughs> lot of money for that? Huh? <laughs> you live out all your cowboy fantasies and all of the cowboys around you are robots. Now, in the original film, um, Yul Brenner, the, the face and persona you always associate with Westerns, don't you? Wasn't Don um, Johnson in that also? The yeah. young Don Johnson? Uh, played, played one of the robots who started, the robots started uh, breaking down and, and starting to actually shoot people. No. <laughs> Tell me no. To our sponsor. <laughs> if you're in a amusement park in a Michael Crichton story, get out quickly. <laughs> Things are not going to go well. The technology is going to fail you. So. It seems that he was a little tiny obsessed with amusement parks gone awry. The only way to explain it is that as a kid, he got stuck on the It's a Small World After All ride for <laughs> eight hours. <laughs> giving him a lifelong fear of theme parks and all that kind of stuff. Michael Crichton was six foot nine. Maybe he just couldn't fit in the rides. There Ooh, go. there you go. So, uh, so Dave, you, you saw, you'd seen the original back from the, I want to say, the early, early to mid-70s? Long time ago. They didn't capture the flavor the way that this series seems to have captured it. I think they just didn't have a grip on Michael Crichton back then. It wasn't as scary as it should have been. Because yeah, um, I was not wowed by this concept. You knew it was going to be HBO, so it would be you know, done on an extravagant, extravagant scale. But 
because uh, they said it's from the story, the point of view of the robots. And I was like, nah. <laughs> but they really pulled it off very, very well in the sense of the, um, the problems with the robots and them not quite following their programming and things like that are very subtle. And you have the staff that's trying to figure out what's going on. And only in that last scene do they really allude to the possibility that, no, the robots know exactly what's going on. And they're not happy with it at all. <laughs> and things are going to happen. Stay tuned. You know, and then they, things will lead from that. So, so here's my first thought for you, Mickey. If there was an amusement park that could have robots doing whatever you wanted, I'm going to go out of limb and guess that a Western setting would not be your first choice. Nope. Nope. And, uh, well, honestly, because in thinking about this, I need you guys to understand, I am never going to an amusement park filled with robots. <laughs> because it occurred to me that, like you said, just when you were saying that, like, you know, if you could have anything, uh, anything filled with robots, what would it be? And I'm like, nope, Nothing. you don't get this one because... <laughs> The truth of the matter is one of my favorite places on the planet is Chincoteague Island. And the reason that it's one of my favorite places on the planet is because it has ponies and dolphins and water. And so none of those involve robots. <laughs> I'm not going to any of your stupid amusement parks. And Michael Crichton, he rode nightmares for a living. And even the idea of going to one of these now where they've got the Jurassic Parks with the robot dinosaurs mm -hmm. they could do a combination of the two stories right there um there's there's definitely vibes of jurassic park and uh the matrix the idea of, of these you know from the perspective of these robots they've been living a western life and all of a sudden things things seem to be repeating themselves they begin to notice things that just simply don't make sense you know the concept of a story where the world is not as you think it is um if i'm I, I got to say, it's kind of interesting that they kept the idea of artificial intelligence and using it for entertainment and whether there might be some um, very ominous or dark implications of this. And maybe you could say this gets to uh, the questions of virtual reality. Uh, all of a sudden, everybody's got their Oculus. Is it Oculus Rift glasses or something? Mm -hmm. You see the commercial where like everyone's kind of seems to be spazzing out when they're wearing uh, goggles from some. Company. Oh my god, you're talking about that Samsung commercial. <laughs> yes. Okay. So that Samsung commercial, by the way, the Samsung people whose phones are blowing up everywhere, um, <laughs> catching fire, That's right. are now trying to convince people to put on these goggles and sit in a room and let people film them. Apparently, while they have these very emotional experiences, and I want to know why they're crying. <laughs> like I have a lot of questions about that, but it's a you little too Holocaust immersion program. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's a little creepy in 1984 for me. I do not like that commercial. Carry on. It's a little. It's a little too easy to picture people all lined up in rows, plugged into this, living out their happiest lives, and utterly. It's a little too matrixy, I think, for people. It's a little too. You got to give them IV nutrition because they're going to stop eating and drinking while they have these experiences. Well, and that's the thing. And they take the goggles off and they're like teared up. And I'm like, oh, God. oh my God, what did I just see? And I'm thinking like, what the hell did you just see? What did that's you right. do to them, Samsung? And what the hell is this program? <laughs> Samsung, we're coming to control you. And I, yeah, there is. You know, this is the most Orwellian, isn't this wonderful, brave new world uh, uh, message we, we've had from a, a company like that. So <laughs> I guess the idea, I mean, both of these come to um, – a, a conclusion of it. We, we want entertainment. And if you create an imaginary character in a film or a book or a TV show, 
it's actors. It's just people being pretending and all that stuff. What happens when you can create someone artificially, whether it's a artificial computer-generated image that you can interact with? I, I assume that's some ver- that, that can't be that far away if we're getting this close to the virtual reality and things like that. Um, at some point, do we start creating yeah. things? Okay. I was just saying, you know, Hollywood's already done a couple movies on the idea of men falling in love with Siri. Yeah. Because she develops an understanding of a certain intelligence of understanding what you want and what you need. And so, therefore, people tend to really like that. There have been a couple of movies like that. The one where the guy fell in love with the female software and the other one is this Deus Ex Machina movie with the girl walking around and the, the the guy at the research facility trying to train yeah. her to fall in love. I mean, inspired Pygmalion. Yeah. Um, the sculptor <laughs> falling in love with the woman he's sculpting. The rain uh, in Spain. That you're creating your perfect person. On you the know. Plane. And that's a storyline that holds up time after time after time. Yeah. Um, so indisputably, like, you know, there, there, there's, you know, plenty of, um, ominous foreshadowing in Westworld. I, I do want to really salute them to give you a, a spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the first episode. So hit pause in this podcast, go watch it, come back to this one. <laughs> um, one of the things they keep asking is they keep saying there's no way the, uh, the robots could ever harm anyone. They're programmed to do that way. They're programmed to never uh, do anything to harm a human being. And they do kind of this like interview with the robot to make sure their programming is, is true. And they say, you know, are you being honest with us? Yes. Could you ever lie to us? No. Could you ever hurt a person? No. I could never hurt a single living thing. And they do that. And throughout the movie, or throughout the opening show, they have them walking around. And it's the West. And there are flies everywhere because it's a realistic depiction of the West. And occasionally the flies go walk across their eyeballs. Right? They're robots. They don't notice the flies. Right? They, or, you know. And the very last scene is one of the robots. We're told it's one of the oldest ones. And one of their favorites is standing on the porch, and she, uh, a fly goes across her neck, and she swats it. <laughs> the seat change, the singularity. <laughs> yeah, well, indicating that, wait a second, she can harm a living thing. And she just assured all the robots, builders, and scientists, and all that stuff, I could never harm, which means she can lie. Yep. Which all of a sudden we now realize, oh, wait a minute, there's a lot going on inside this robot's head that, they're, this, this, that she's not telling us. Uh, creating ominous indicators for what's to come, and we'll see what goes on in future in weeks and stuff. But I, I really wanted to applaud them for the subtlety of that, where you know, to most of you, like, oh, she's just swatting a fly. But right. You, wait a minute. In previous scenes, we indicated that was not something they were supposed to be able to do. It signals an end to their Buddhism, at any rate. Is the regular cast then the robots, not the visitors to the park? Yeah, there's like three. There, there are a couple of intertwining plot lines. One is the. Um, uh, what's going on with these robots walking around the old western town and the outside and all that stuff. Uh, Ed Harris, I think, is in the equivalent of the old Brenner role. Um, as a robot who, we first we think he's a uh, bad guy robot. Then we realize that he's shooting people. And we think, oh, wait a minute. This is a person who has decided to go into this world and wants to act out all of his evil fantasies. And then it goes back to you again in reverse again and say, no, actually, he is a robot who is running around trying to get answers, who has figured out something is wrong with this world. And he's almost like, he's dressed like Black Bart and he's really evil. But you begin to kind of sympathize, wait a minute, he's trying to actually, um, he's, he's, you know, he, he knows something is wrong. He's, he's kind of a detective. And he's, he's running around killing these other robots. 
because he knows that they're robots and there's not going to be any consequence to killing them. Ah. Um, okay, yeah, like, there's a, I was surprised at kind of the um, complicated and nuanced moral thinking going on in all the characters here. There's also kind of a, a great little ominous implication of, uh, of dialogue amongst the uh, theme park executives where they say, look, do you really think this kind of technology is being developed just to create a theme park? Indicating that as these robots are getting more advanced and more ability to look like humans or something like that, that there's some other purpose that they're being built for. We welcome our new <laughs> robot overlords. <laughs> yeah, you know, assassins or duplicates or, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things. that this I is... won't even have a Roomba in my house. So. <laughs> <laughs> when the uprising starts, only Mickey's house will be safe. <laughs> the yeah, I, like the robots and you know of course we discussed the creepy clowns last week but robots hold a lot of you know oh kind of interest for me about zero mm-hmm. and um, i mean i love the concept of having a robot that would go around and clean my house and cook my dinners and things like that um but like there's something conceptually about robots they're kind of like zombies i can't invest in them um, but I've heard so many great things about this show that I'm, I'm tempted to check it out anyway. So maybe maybe you've convinced me of that. The Roomba will come and try to kill you very slowly. <laughs> It'll bounce off my feet and <laughs> Bunk, bunk, bunk. Well, coming up in the next segment, we are going to be talking about some of the other crazy new scientific inventions. And some would consider a blessing and some, well... Some might just consider it really bad ideas. I'm Mickey White. He's Jim Garrity. We'll be right back. Maybe we should live without the wisecracks. You can feel uneasy about your bathroom. The best fresh ingredients are what make Betty Crocker potato dishes taste so good. This is a cubic foot. There are five more of these inside the new Chevrolet than there are inside this year's older style full-size cars of Chevy's nearest sales competitor. That's based on U.S. government estimates of vehicle interior size as reported in the 1977 EPA Guide for New Car Buyers. Your ears are not deceiving you. Everyone's favorite law and order cop, Jerry Orbach, in the 1970s doing a car ad. The new Chevrolet with five more cubic feet of room. It stacks up beautifully. Now that's more like it. I like to take a ride very high in the sky with my three musketeers. I can't get far without my fluffy chocolate bar. Three musketeers. Luscious chocolatey nougat whipped up and out. Mmm. Then covered in real milk chocolate for that light fluffy taste that gives your spirits a lift. No matter what's around, that's where I can be found with my now, back to the Jim and Mickey show. I am Mickey White along with Jim Garrity, and I'm here to share a story that came across my feed this week um, that really caught my attention for a couple different reasons. And it's one of those situations where the headline alone is really quite good. Um, World's first baby born to three biological parents. And uh, this is the, the article I'm going to read from here is actually from people, but you can find it across um, the interwebs. And it starts out, three's not a crowd. The first, <laughs> the world's first baby with DNA from three biological parents has been born. Doctors revealed to the new scientist. Scientists waited until baby boy was five months old to go public with, a, with the revolutionary procedure until they were certain he did not inherit a deadly gene from his mother. 
The baby boy's mother carries genes for Lee syndrome, a rare inherited disorder that affects the central nervous system and resulted in the death of her first two children. The baby's Jordanian parents consulted Dr. John Zhang, who had been working on the three-parent technique at the New Hope Fertility Center in New York City. The couple was opposed to the destruction of any embryos due to their religion. So Zhang explored a different approach called a spindle nuclear transfer to ensure the baby would not inherit the rare genetic gene. Zhang implanted the nucleus with from one of the mother's eggs and implanted it into a donor's egg that had its own nucleus removed. The egg, which had the mother's DNA, mitochondrial DNA from the donor, was then fertilized with her husband's sperm. An embryo was then implanted and the baby was born nine months later. Zhang and his team will monitor the baby to make sure his mitochondrial levels stay low. And further details will be, find, will be released um, during the American Reproductive Technology World Congress in New York City on October 13th. Starting to sound like another Michael Crichton story to me. Right? You know, so we're getting closer to the Serpentor project possibility where you can take the DNA from world leaders throughout history and build the ultimate one. Or, or you could take the DNA from, you know, 14 NFL players to <laughs> develop the ultimate uh, running back or something like that. Um, this, this strikes me, uh, like on the one hand, Every time an infertile couple or a couple that's having children is able to conceive, I, you know, it's, it's a good thing. You want to see people happy. Um, but, you know, as a, are, are we bad people for creeped out, Mickey? I, I don't consider myself a bad person um, for being creeped out. I, I read this story thoroughly. I understand that she lost two children. That is horribly sad. Adopt. If the mother has a gene that has a fear of being passed on and has killed the previous two babies, that's, you know, it's horrible. It's a genetic thing maybe there's something you know there's a reason god didn't want to have kids i don't know here's what i know i feel like when you get to the point of playing around with dna inside of nuclei inside of eggs that haven't even been fertilized yet you kind of you're messing with things like again they're they're monitoring this child basically to make sure that it doesn't like blow up i mean we've all seen we child looks literally explode but yeah like yeah like i mean really i mean we've seen all of the superhero movies they don't always go well the first time around with their experiments the british all say that ginger kids don't have a soul <laughs> I'm wondering if a three dna kid has a soul well i'm sure it sure has a soul i just i it's just so uncomfortable to me but it is the, the world of science. Like we, we, we wake up, we, we were born, we grow up, we, we go to school, we learn how the world works. And then one day scientists come along and say, nah, <laughs> you know, up until now, people have two parents, right? Now, they may have step parents. They may have adoptive parents. They're all kind of variety. But, you know, generally everybody's got a mom and a dad biologically. You end up being raised with a different set of setup. That's fine. Everybody loves you. Nobody, you know. But that was, you know, genetically, you had two parents from two sources. And now science is like, no, nah, you can have three. It's also, in my opinion, the, uh, like the height of narcissism on the part of this woman specifically. Because she did experience the, quote, joy of birth, even though obviously her children did not make it. So – the idea of why she could not just have even a surrogate egg 
and and her husband's sperm um, is lost on me. Why it was necessary that she have her genes passed on? Mine is one bad completely lost on me. Yeah, it is kind of an ego trip to insist that it be your own biological material when all you really want to do is love a kid, right? Right. So it have to be physically yours. Yeah, to play devil's advocate, and perhaps a little more literally than I'm than I'm used to being. Um, we have the biological urge to propagate the species, not just propagate any old species, but, you know, the reproductive urge comes to wanting to pass on our genes, not just anybody's old genes. Now, I think life has had enough examples in which we, you know, I, I would argue nurture is much more powerful than nature. I don't believe there are people who are born with an evil DNA um, or born with something that makes them the way they are. I think that, you know, I think a lot of things in life are moral choices. And I think hiding, the, you know, the argument this is all in our DNA and our genetic code and we are, you know, made to do this by our genes, I think is uh, often used as an excuse to rely, to, to explain away a lot of things that were actually conscious choices. The cop out. Having said, you know, but I think the more, we all love and celebrate scientific research when it is designed to preserve life. And when it is designed to to enhance lives, and I think also to, you know, anytime you're doing something in order to, we're willing to take some risk taking, right? Somebody says, I don't know if that experimental cure is going to work. Most of us would say, look, it's better than just suffering with the treat, you know, with, with the disease. Go take that chance. When it comes to, we're going to take this risk in order to create life. I think people get a little, you know, the hairs in the back of their neck start going up just because of, um, that that life that is about to be created. This ties actually to our our conversation about Westworld, right? Oh, absolutely. So asking that child, do you want to be the experiment in a? There's there's no there's no consent there, right? You're just created, and perhaps you know, helpfully this child comes out healthy and wonderful and lives a long happy life, or trying to combine three types of DNA could have some sort of you know unforeseen side effect down the road. Um, that would feel like a really terrible thing to inflict upon a child. It'd be like the Frankenstein plot where the monster gets mad at the doctor for creating him. Uh, yeah. And again, like this, you know, it, it just seems like, you know. You it's know, like no one has seen X-Men. <laughs> 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 There's plenty of movies out there, right? Not just one X-Men. In a world movie. where, you know, there are a lot of children who, needs home, who need homes, the idea of um, taking a big risk to create a child um, like that feels a little, um, let's just say, let's just say morally questionable. I'm not going to spend a lot of time hurling, you know, uh, metaphors. It feels a little self-serving. I understand that some women really want to, quote, go through the joy of birth. I have never, nor do I wish to. Huh? Um, but I understand, you know, some really like that kind of pain. One of the creepy things that science is doing is trying to create uh children for the purpose of getting organ transplants for the parents at later years and they're really trying to create physical duplicates of the people who are who are raising these children and that's what they're for and i tell you every time i hear about advances in creating children with dna mucking around and making it this way and that way i worry that they're one step closer to raising organ donors yeah the idea you know instilled in hopefully particularly in our culture although some might argue it's been eroded that each person is unique and each person is purpose and each person has unique rights and all that kind of stuff. Well, if you could create bodies full of spare organs, but not develop, say the brain. So, you know, like, do you, is that moral? Is that immoral? Right. Does that person have rights? Does that person have soul? Could you, you, you could you create a body for spare parts? Now that you have given me nightmares, <laughs> there you go. Just picture, just picture the rows of bodies uh, with no heads. 
<laughs> like the Great. vampire uh, blood donors in the Blade movie, right? Full of extra, you know, livers and intestines <laughs> and hearts and, and all that kind of stuff, right? You know, a giant, or even if they had to do that, just to pack, just picture shelves full of spare hearts and livers and other things that needed for transplants. <laughs> Again, I can't. I, I you've left me a bit speechless, which I rarely happens. Yes, <laughs> that's why in China there's a death penalty for crossing the street, but only if you're 25 years old or younger. <laughs> oh, so you ever seen the museum display of human bodies? Right, and they take oh, yeah, the bodies yeah. and preserve and all that stuff. You know they're all from China, right? No, and I'm sure they all that. died under perfectly natural circumstances. You in no way, shape, or form are you looking at the bodies of political prisoners. Seriously. <laughs> Um, oh I have, if you can't listen to this podcast, it's because the Chinese have gotten to SoundCloud. Uh, I am Jim Garrity. That is Mickey White. It will be off the creepy topics. Well, hopefully slightly less creepy topics of your childhood crush right after this. Chicken licking. I'd like. We're closed, lady. My cousin's dropped in. Lady, I'm mopping up. What are you mopping with? What am I mopping with? What kind of cleanup? A liquid. Make some spick and span. Spick and span? Want to get home? It'll put power in the water. Go over where you just clean. But it's clean. Look, Spick and Span wouldn't leave all that greasy dirt. Hey, thanks, lady. This is Concours, a world-class luxury compact from Chevrolet. In Europe, to show that an American car can challenge the highways of the world, Concours is an affordable car for people who appreciate the stylish elegance of fine touring cars, luxurious interiors, and dependable Chevrolet engineering. Concours. Built for Americans at home anywhere. A world-class luxury compact from Chevrolet. If I told him how I make Hidden Valley Ranch salad dressing, he'd never try it. I ate it. This dressing's delicious. It's different. You see, the Hidden Valley fixings turn mayonnaise and buttermilk. What'd you say? I said we're out of butter. Oh. Into an extraordinary salad dressing with a fresh, lively flavor that's delicious, like he says. Eat it. Who are you talking to? I'm talking, uh, it's only the TV, Ralph. Delicious Hidden Valley Ranch, the original flavor buttermilk dressing with the original taste. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. And, uh, Mickey... This is usually the part of the program where we talk about your fantastic Trivial Tuesday contest. Follow Mickey on Twitter. It's usually some sort of uh, uh, unusual kind of survey question, taking your your temperature, getting your opinion on something. And um, what was our Trivial Tuesday this week, Mickey? I will just go ahead and put my hand out so you can smack it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we didn't have one. Okay, that's all right. Not a problem. Not a problem. Have the best of there was this big event that went on Monday night that kind of had everybody buzzing about Tuesday night. So maybe it wasn't a good, it was a rebuilding week for the trivial Tuesday, but I, I have a suggestion for this one. And you can okay. put next Tuesday. Uh, come to, I was reading about something we thought talked about spoiler alerts, um, whether people feel the need to totally, you know, honor them, whether people don't care. I want to know what is the worst spoiler you've ever heard? What, what ending, what shocking twist, what film, TV show, book, uh, had, was ruined for you by somebody and what sticks in your craw and what drives you crazy about it. Darth Vader turned out to be Luke's father. Oh, shut up. I haven't been to the movie yet. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think because this might be one that I'm going to have to work on for Trivial Tuesday myself because, you know, there's been all kinds of spoilers out there. Obviously, some people ended up getting the... I think the Sixth Sense is probably one of the biggest twists because in order to have a spoiler, it has to have a huge twist, Right. I was say once you take away the twist from M Night Shyamalan movie, yes, just a lot of poor lighting and ominous music. 
But I think that's key. And, you know, people put spoiler alert up from week to week on different shows. But that's about the progress of what's happening. And um, I'm trying to think of one. I mean, probably I I would almost guarantee that it's going to come from Pretty Little Liars because I got so far behind. And that show is full of like little surprise endings and things that I ended up reading about it online before I knew it happened. And I had to watch through it knowing what was coming. Um, But I'm going to think about that so I can put together a, a good list of my own for Trivial Tuesday. But is there anyone in particular that sticks out for you? Uh, two of them. I mean, I just had Sixth Sense. I think I went in, I'd heard before I went to see the movie um, uh, that, that, you know, the Bruce, about the Bruce Willis character. And um, so I went away going, eh. And at the same time, I believe Mrs. Campaign Spot saw the movie with her parents right after a friend's father had died. Terrible time to watch a movie about somebody who died. <laughs> And that idea of uh, of the idea of ghosts, uh, maybe there was really not emotionally in the right uh, state of mind to watch that movie. The other one, of course, I believe that somebody just took a picture of this. It was a poster for The Usual Suspects back in the mid-1990s. I believe it was in the New York City subway system or something. And someone wrote above Kevin Spacey's head, I am Kaiser Soze. <laughs> oh, my Golly. God. Like, what? That's one of my favorite movies of all time, and I think I probably would have been devastated. Spoiling it for 10,000 people a day. Good grief. Right? Everybody walks by that <laughs> sign. Oh, well. <laughs> World-class marketing for spoilers, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, in retrospect. <laughs> something in there is like, ah! It's no! one of the great iconic, you know, scenes in film of the, the, <laughs> the police line up there. But... Uh... <laughs> To there be fair, even if you are watching that, I'm not sure the first yeah. time. It's, it's I'm not sure movie. it would have stuck. Yeah. It's still a very good movie, but yes, it's that, that's the curveball that kind of makes you say, whoa. So, yeah. When I thought yeah, back I, on it, uh, uh, the Darth Vader being Luke's father, you know, the word Vader is German and Dutch for father. So from the beginning, it was pretty much given away by the name of the character, and I never realized that. And I'm multilingual. I should have caught on. <laughs> Spoiled as it was a spoiler for everybody from 1976 on, right? Well, okay, we can argue from uh, amongst you know true Star Wars geeks. There's really nothing in the first movie indicating that George Lucas had thought of that yet. <laughs> and when you think about you know, in fact, you know, just as in Empire Strikes Back, the full tongue kiss that Luke and Leia have <laughs> makes it very clear he had not decided they were right. Yet. A little indecisiveness in the scripting is like Luke. I am your father. I know, man. Your name is Father. <laughs> or alternately, the world's most powerful Jedi can't recognize that his own daughter is standing right in front of him. Uh, <laughs> you might have noticed a little bit of familiar, a familiarity to her mother. Mickey, I think we could write a book on Star Wars. Spoilers. We could. Oh, I was just going to let you guys keep going because <laughs> yeah. you lost me like, I don't know, two, three minutes ago. You, but please do continue to geek on. Uh, we have come to <laughs> the end of another show and it's been a lot of fun. And I'm going to go ahead and just let these guys keep talking about Star Wars as we get off. But I encourage you to make sure that you're back here every single week. Um, you can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud.com. And you can find us at soundcloud.com forward slash, and it's Jim and Mickey show. And if you subscribe there, you can have a, actually make sure you never miss another podcast or another episode because it'll be delivered directly to you. And uh, you can do that on SoundCloud through several different options and through either your iPhone, 
or your Android. So a great option for you there. Please do check us out on Facebook.com forward slash Jim and Mickey show. You can find Jim on Twitter at Jim Garrity. You can find me on almost every form of social media at biased girl and of course we've got big dave p that's dave perkins behind the board and we're here every single week i'm mickey white he's jim garrity and you've been listening to the one the only jim and mickey show we're going to close it out with a gift especially for mickey from the year 1980 of pittsburgh steelers vin scully flashback and the nearest nfl tandem And if they don't hurt you in the air, the upstarts from San Francisco can crush you on the ground. Case in point, Pat Hayden, who was sacked six times last week, the highest total against the Rams in five years. They also stopped Wendell Tyler in the highly touted Ram ground game. And Hayden had to be conscious of 74. You'll see him, Fred Dean. Pittsburgh alive and well and tied with Cincinnati for first place in the AFC Central. Familiar figures, Terry Bradshaw, 12 years out of Louisiana Tech, and Franco Harris, 10 years out of Penn State, here busting one for 35 yards against the Houston Oilers. And if Bradshaw goes to the air, it will not be to Lynn Swan, but it most certainly will be to young Jim Smith. On the ground... Houston stymied by another steel curtain. And so that's it. The kids from San Francisco and the veterans from Pittsburgh. Coming up. It's the middle 60s and the leaves on the trees are russet and gold, brown and yellow. Fall is here. Hi, everybody. I'm Vin Scully along with Hank Strand. Hank, we all know that the 49ers have won five straight. The Steelers, once a great team, seem to have roused themselves against Houston Monday night. Is there any other discernible difference between the two clubs? Vinny, I think to use the boxing vernacular, I think that the San Francisco 49ers are a boxing kind of a team. The Pittsburgh Steelers are the sluggers, the knockout team. You talk about the infighting will come from Frank Pollard and Franco Harris. The home run threats, the knockout shots will come from Bradshaw to Stallworth or Smith. On the other hand, it'll be a finesse kind of an offense, ball control passing by the San Francisco 49ers. I think we're going to be in for a treat this afternoon. We're going to see two outstanding football teams here in Pittsburgh. Well, as you look at Chuck Noll, you can also understand that the San Francisco 49ers lost the toss, and so Ray Worshing will tee it up at the 35-yard line, and deep will be Larry Anderson, number 30, and Greg Hawthorne, number 27, for Pittsburgh. So we're just about ready to get it underway, and a magnificent day, and the Steelers virtually impossible to beat at home. That'll be the challenge. Greg Hawthorne fumbling, then picks it up at the one, surrounded at about the eight, and down he goes at the 10-yard line. Eason Ramson, number 80, the first man down. And so... 